When someone is going through a storm, your silent presence is more powerful than a million empty words. This is Silent Presence with Rich Patricia. It's a show about caring, a moment for understanding, a time to think about those around you. In a time of increased stress and uncertainty, your silent presence is more powerful than a million empty words. And now, the host of Silent Presence, Rich Patricia. Hi everybody and welcome to Silent Presence. I really want to thank you for listening and allowing me to share my personal story and the stories of others with you. We'll discuss topics on addiction, mental health, grief, and the ability to move forward and find happiness in your daily life and possibly make a difference. My guest today spent over two decades dealing with drug addiction and mental health issues, spent several months in prison, and eventually turned his life around in a big way. He's a professional writer, speaker, and blogger who just published a new book entitled My Addiction and Recovery. Just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ed Cressy. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Rich, thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. This is an honor. Well, it's an honor to have you. I've looked at your story and read through everything and they're speaking to you and uh, reading your work. You really are uh, an influence to so many people, I have to say. Hey, thanks for reading my articles and uh, what I put out there online. It's uh, I've had so many incredible opportunities in my life, thanks to amazing people who inspired me to transform my life, to turn my life around, to overcome some of the devastating mistakes that I made. So to be able for, for me to be able to give something back in some small regard, it just makes life so meaningful. I appreciate your kind words. Oh, thanks. I, um, as you know, I, uh, I lost my son to addiction two years ago and decided to do this podcast, uh, Silent Presence, uh, as a way to reach out to people like yourself who play that role in other people's lives, that silent presence, that person who's there to listen and not pass judgment and not rely on the stigma, unfortunately, that exists today. So it's really a pleasure to have you and to uh, see all the great work that you're doing. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. And my belief, Rich, for what it's worth, is wherever your son is right now, he's uh, he's smiling at you. His, uh, his beautiful energy, his uh, positive vibes are going out and helping many, many people through you and hopefully in some small way through me too. It's just uh, my pleasure and my honor to be working with you. Well, thank you so much. Let's start with your past. Um, You came from, a lot of people would say, you know, when they look at people that suffer from addiction, a lot of people have it in their mind that they come from really bad homes and really bad lives, but, um, but that's just not the case. It's been my experience that is not the case. I came from a very affluent background. I had almost everything, at least of a material nature, that one could want provided for me from a very young age in the idyllic countryside in Western Massachusetts. I was taught to read very early by my parents. A love of reading was instilled in me. I grew up, uh, you know, plenty of woods, plenty of fields, uh, you know, a beautiful dog uh, for a pet. Just had a lot of opportunities very early on in life. Yet still I succumbed to my poor decisions and I succumbed to addiction. And you were addicted to um, to drugs for 20 years, correct? About two decades? Two decades, that's right. That's a very long time. And in the last 11 years of that, you were addicted to methamphetamines. Yes, 
Yeah, I used a lot of meth. I started off as a binge user. I would, I, you know, I was what you might term a functional addict. I had a great job with the company that went on to become the number one best firm in America to work for, you know, according to Fortune magazine. They were called Genentech, this big, successful biotech company that treated me very well for the five years I was there. I had a, a hobby. I was a, did a lot of kickboxing. I, I was never very good, but, you know, I trained hard. <laughs> And, uh, I had, you know, just many opportunities, great, wonderful relationships. I uh, eventually I owned a home in San Francisco. Many, many things were provided for me. Uh, yet still, I, uh, you know, I just never it's addiction, as you're aware, is a complex set of circumstances. I think for me, ultimately, a lack of gratitude was really one of the core problems of all the many wonderful things I had, I just didn't learn to properly appreciate them. I was always looking at, you know, what I thought was wrong with the world or how people were doing me wrong or what wasn't good enough for me instead of appreciating the many beautiful, wonderful things that life did provide me. All that negativity, it was really mostly it was negativity about myself. I hated myself. There was a lot of self-loathing going back to when I was a kid and bullied on the playground and afraid to stand up for myself, unable to fit in with the cliques of popular kids. All that negativity that I carried with me through my adult life, I turned outward to the world around me and used drugs, a lot of drugs, a lot of intoxicants to tamp down that negativity and uh, eventually got me where it got me. And that story sounds very similar to anybody who's dealing with an addiction of some kind, whether it be gambling, drugs, alcohol. You know, the the story is there where they're just they, there's something in their lives that they're not happy about. Yeah, if you know gratitude for for what we have, there's always something we can feel grateful for. I have a little game I like to play, or a little exercise where I start with my feet, and I think, what about my feet? Am I grateful for? You know, right now in this moment, I have warm socks on my feet and uh, I have all 10 toes and I have no blisters or broken bones in my feet. I don't have to walk through the snow with no boots on. You know, I can find 20 or 30 things just with my feet that I'm grateful for in this moment in time. So by building on that, when I look at all the wonderful things I have in the world today, I can dispel those feelings of negativity I can um, do away with the core problem, which is my lack of gratitude for the world around me. And that makes it so I don't need drugs. I don't need addictive behaviors. I don't need those things as solutions to my problems. So I have better solutions. My solutions are gratitude, spirituality, self-improvement, service to others. Those get at the root causes of my drug addiction. And that makes it so drugs really aren't an option for me anymore. And I have to tell you that, you know, after going through my son's loss, you know, they they say that uh, welcome to the new life or the new normal, if you will. Uh, I don't necessarily like that term terminology, but it does make you think differently. When you struggled with your addiction, you know, you, you really have to sit back and think, geez, you know, there's really more uh, to this world and to my life, especially, you know, down the road. Oh, absolutely. Our, our thoughts are so important. Everything stems from our thoughts. Everything that, if you look around you in the room that you're in or in the car you're driving or the outdoor area where you may be, everything that you see 
just about was started with a thought. You know, if you're sitting in a chair, someone thought about that chair and then it became reality. Someone thought about the car or imagine the car that you're driving, and then eventually it became a reality. You know, I've been taught, Rich, that my circumstances might shape my beliefs, but it's much more true that my beliefs create my circumstances. Yes. It's not so much what happens to me that matters. It's a meaning that I ascribe to it. You know, when we think about that silent presence, I think of you as being that that person who's now turned around, changes life, and is playing that role, you know, in life that, that you're talking about. Let me ask you this. Was there anyone in your life that played that role, that silent presence, that person who just didn't judge that that was there to listen and help you along the path? Many people, many people, Rich. One person springs to mind, Joe Aliotto. We're still good friends. And well, I'll tell you, in the year 2007, in October, I was living in this flop house hotel in San Francisco. I hadn't showered or brushed my teeth in months. I had outfits that I would wear. Those were all the clothes I owned, were these two filthy outfits, and one of them was a tuxedo <laughs> because I'd worked at these strip clubs and I got fired from the strip clubs. Uh, in October 2007, I would eat food that I found. I would cheat welfare. I would use my food stamps to buy steaks and trade the steaks to my drug dealer for methamphetamine. I, uh, I was steps away from long-term homelessness. They were evicting me from my Flophouse Hotel or long-term incarceration. I was still deep in psychosis from the methamphetamine. I was hearing disembodied voices that would threaten to kidnap me and torture me to death that were sent by the FBI and the police. I mean, I could go on and on and on. The point is, in 2007, October, these were my circumstances, and I really haven't even gotten to the worst of it. Flash forward to 2008, after I'd been clean for a while, this incredible individual named Joe Aliotto, uh, along with his wife, Erica, and many of their friends, they allowed me to volunteer for a political campaign they were doing in San Francisco. Uh, it was a campaign for elected office, but basically Joe was uh, a neighborhood guy. He wanted to improve his neighborhood for the, for the people who lived there. Uh, Joe and Erica, they were expecting their first child. Joe was also working for, in, in his legal career, he's an attorney. Nevertheless, with, with all they had going on, with their family, their political campaign, their careers, uh, Erica at the time was very successful in uh, Yelp, if you've heard of uh, you know, the Yelp. Nevertheless, they brought me into their family, basically. They saw in me the potential that I couldn't see in myself. Joe and Erica and their amazing family, they believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. They made me feel that I was a worthwhile person. Even if, if I couldn't see that, when I saw myself through their eyes, that was one way I, be, I became able to grasp on to things like spirituality and service to others and self-improvement. You know, Joe and Erica and their family made me feel like a worthwhile person. And when I did that, or when I started to feel that way, I could bring value to the world around me. And then the world would give me more value and it just snowballed and got exponentially better and better for me and hopefully to, for those around me. Joe and Erica, amazing individuals, and they're, they're a couple of a handful of people who really, starting back in 2008 when I got clean, 
uh, inspired me to turn my life around. And, you know, they, they among others, are the reasons I'm here today. Wouldn't it be wonderful if more people in this world would be like them? It would be wonderful. And on the other end, also, you know, you don't realize some other people that I can think of. There was a cop who arrested me, who said just a couple of kind words to me after she arrested me. This cop, she made me feel that she cared about me insofar as she cared about human beings in general. And I, even if just barely fit into that category, this cop, she inspired me to start turning my life around years after I met her. And eventually, I wrote an article about her that the Washington Post was kind enough to publish. Mm -hmm. I was able to promote positive relationships between law enforcement and communities they serve that are affected by addiction. The point is, you don't know necessarily what a couple of kind words can do for an individual. No. You don't know how, yeah, you don't know just uh, what, uh, what a simple act of kindness or a few words of encouragement. That can turn, it won't always happen, but sometimes it can turn a life around. And they say kindness is never wasted. No, it's not. And and as a teacher, I find myself, you know, just spreading kindness all the time. I think it's so important in life for us to continue to do that. You know, you can always hopefully change them. Yeah, well, Rich, I'm sure as a teacher, you have changed a lot of lives. You have touched a lot of individuals. You have put so much good out there in the world and it's uh, it's rippling out there and creating more and more good. I'm sure you've really helped a lot of individuals. Well, thanks. I, I do appreciate that. I hope I did too. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you talked about, you know, involving yourself with the police and some people that have worked on your side. And you had some problems with the FBI in the past. And I'd like to talk about that just a little bit. But now also, regardless of the problems that you had in the past, you're working directly with them to help other people now. I love the FBI. I'm so grateful for them. They gave me a second chance. When I was in methamphetamine psychosis, I didn't feel that way at all. <laughs> I, yeah. I blamed, you know, I blamed the FBI. I thought they were they had architected this conspiracy against me and were trying to assassinate me or set me up for life in prison. I used to show up at the FBI offices high on meth, and I would never threaten them or, or anything like that, but I would complain about the conspiracies or ask for their help. And one day I gave the FBI no choice but to arrest me mm -hmm. because I would show, I would show, I showed up at their office with a bench warrant out for my arrest. Uh, flash forward a few years later, even after I continued to experience a form of psychosis, episodes of the schizophrenia-like condition that had plagued me during my methamphetamine addiction. Fortunately, I found the strength to face my fears thanks to many inspiring, amazing people. I ended up, like you mentioned, volunteering for the FBI. They gave me an incredible opportunity. I'm so grateful. They put me through their Selective Citizens Academy, which is uh, sort of a, a mini, uh, it's, it's a way for citizens involved in public safety or community service to get an idea of the FBI's mission and how the FBI serves communities. From there, incredibly, I was in the Washington, D.C. headquarters of the FBI, shaking hands with a director, That's Christopher incredible. Ray. <laughs> is he? Yeah, he gave me a community service award. I was one of 57 Americans to be so honored. So to take that trajectory, it that's, is. It's that's incredible. just really incredible. And to think that, you know, uh, here was a person that you were afraid of, that you were avoiding all of this time. And this same person now is the one 
handing you an award. That's that's fantastic. I uh, know that you have a book called My Addiction and Recovery. Just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. And you just touched on that a little bit and how you were finished with the drugs, but yet there was still something there, still something controlling your life. Absolutely. Well, if there's one thing to understand about drug addiction, it is that drugs often are not our problem. Drugs are our attempt at a solution. Mm-hmm. Our problem could be something else. For me, my problem, like we were saying, was my lack of gratitude, my self-hatred. We often use drugs to solve that problem. And the insidious thing is that as a solution, drugs often work. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever addictive behavior you might be pursuing. Sure, it can work as your solution. It can tamp down. It can help you escape from whatever your true problem is. However, when drugs fail as a solution, they often fail catastrophically, which is what happened for me. I ended up in this, you know, in this flophouse hotel, not having showered or brushed my teeth in months and, and the rest of it. Um, so in my book, the reader gets is my attempt to explain when, when we quit drugs, the, the road is kind of just beginning. We're sort of just at the starting point. Quitting drugs is a necessary goal, but it's not the end goal. I agree with that. Unfortunately, um, you know, when my son went through rehabilitation, uh, he was in for about seven and a half months. And they say that the rehab isn't really the hard part, although at the time, I can tell you that it was really difficult for him. Uh, it was when you when you come out of rehab, that's the, the toughest part. Yeah. Well, when we quit drugs, we have no more solution. And now you got to deal with yourself. Yeah. Now, I, you know, for me, I had to deal with a person who for 20 years lied, cheated, uh, spent his money on uh, on intoxicants, you know, strip clubs, whatever, who uh, put up a fault, you know, who threw away his home and his career. I was that person. I had become basically a threat to society. I, at the very least, I was a serious drain on society's resources. Now, without drugs, I, all that, of that is at the surface. I have to deal with all of that. And the other part, too, is from all of my life, my dream had been to be a writer. Right. I always wanted to be a writer, but never, never applied myself. Now, all these things, I'm 37 years old. I've, I've thrown away everything of a material nature. I've never pursued my dream. My health is very poor. My psychological health is even worse than my physical health. Now I got to deal with all that and I have no more solution, which I have no more drugs, no more solution. So just like you say, when we get out of rehab or when we get clean for drugs, that things, <laughs> things yeah. unfortunately don't get better. They're, they usually get worse, at least at first. What was the moment in your life where you realized, aha, this is the time. I have to do something here. It was in October 2007 before I met uh, Joe and Elio, uh, Joe and Eric Aliotto. I was in that Flophouse Hotel. I put on my filthy tuxedo. I, I went to a, a fancy hotel in downtown San Francisco. I was standing outside a ball, uh, ballroom. There was a wedding reception taking place. I looked in that wedding reception. I was trying to decide whether I should crash it. You know, I was hungry. I wanted something to eat. It occurred to me at that moment, at some level it occurred to me, that in the previous years leading up to that Friday in October 2007, there had been five weddings Ten of my closest friends had gotten married. One of those couples had asked me to be their best man. And Rich, do you know how many of those weddings I showed up to? None. Zero. Exactly. So standing in that hotel ballroom on the threshold with my filthy black tuxedo, having thrown away my life savings, my career, being nowhere near employable, 
something at some level clicked that this was the life trajectory I put myself on. And it was that moment that compelled me to start working very, very hard. Mm -hmm. I began truly applying myself to attending these 12-step meetings. I would go to 12-step meetings two, three, four times a day. I took any job I could. I worked at a Christmas tree lot, you know, hoisting pine trees up on my shoulder and tying them to the roofs of cars. I worked on a UPS truck. I went into rehab. It wasn't fun. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, certainly wasn't easy. It was very, very hard work. But it was that moment when I realized exactly how I'd thrown away or I was on the cusp of throwing away those wonderful friendships, those relationships with the five couples. There was a, there were many other things going on in my life, too. But that was one way I, you know, I really saw the depths to which I had sunk. You know, coming from a large company and having the opportunities there, multi-million dollar company, and then finding yourself working at a tree farm uh, could be very disappointing. When we've really made such wreckage of our lives, as many of us have when we come to drug addiction, that, that's a challenge. Fortunately, there are spiritual pursuits. Mm-hmm. And that works for a lot of us. And spirituality, the way it was taught to me, really means something that's not material. So if we think of something of not of a material nature, it could be gratitude. It could be service to others. It could be it could be organized religion. It could be uh, any number of things. But, you know, when we succumb to drug addiction, often we throw away everything of a material nature and we have nothing left but the spiritual. And in a way, and I'm not advocating anyone get into drugs or drug addiction. Uh, I'm not telling you not to, but I'm certainly not advocating for it. Only you know what are the right decisions for you. But in some ways, addiction can be a twisted blessing because it can force us along pathways we otherwise would have never undertaken. For me, it was spirituality. It was service to others. It was self-improvement. I never really would have discovered these things at the level I discovered them had I not been a drug addict. So to get back to your question, when I was at that Christmas tree farm, something in, inside me knew, cer- certainly not at a conscious level, but somewhere in, my, in the core of my being, I understood that it was a pathway that was going to lead me to something better. I didn't know what, but that really motivated me to do that incredibly hard work of not going back to drugs, of putting in my hours at the Christmas tree farm and the 12 step meetings and the other things, although I deeply resented my surroundings and it was incredibly challenging for me, something in me knew that it was leading me to the light. It was leading me to a better existence, and ultimately, that is what happened. And there are obviously um, better ways to get to that level than you know turning to drugs. I, I would assume. <laughs> uh, there are far better ways. Yeah, can, <laughs> there are many, many better ways, and I can. If uh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So you mentioned something in some of your writing called the Roger Bannister effect. Um, famous runner. You ran a mile in three minutes, 57.9 seconds. You were talking about that as a rule where you benefited by that. Yes, I think that, in my opinion, that's one reason why it's so important to address stigma around addiction and mental illness. Oftentimes, we who struggle with addiction and mental illness, as I have struggled, we're tempted to keep it to ourselves. We're tempted to feel that we need to hide some aspect of ourselves because of the stigma that's out there. The challenge is when you talk about the Roger Bannister effect, basically 
you know, at the time, nobody believed it was possible to run a mile in less than four minutes. It was just generally accepted that it's physically impossible for a human being to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. Once Roger Bannister did run the mile in less than four minutes, many, many other people went on to do the same thing. And it wasn't because human beings significantly evolved after Roger Bannister uh, physically. It was because now that that mental barrier had been broken down. For me, uh, and it's put much better in a great book by William Cope Moyers, who is a a crack cocaine addict. He was the son or he is the son of uh, Bill Moyers. And William Cope Moyers argues in his book that, you know, we as persons who have overcome addiction need to put our stories out there. We need to help break down that stigma. We need to show the world that we can overcome our obstacles and live beautiful lives and help other people. I, I don't I wouldn't for myself, I wouldn't go quite as far as to suggest other people should or shouldn't do anything. I do know for me that one of the most important ways I've gone on to live a life of exceptional meaning, of exceptional fulfillment, of exceptional feelings of self-worth. One important reason is because I have told my story. That's right. I have contributed some small part to that Roger, Roger Bannister effect which hopefully encourages other people to break down their barriers and overcome their obstacles too. And let's face it, when you are addicted, when you are using, regardless of the addiction, you are embarrassed that you're even doing the things that you're doing because of the stigma, but also because it's just not something that you really want other people to know about. Deep, deep shame. Incredible, the depths of shame, the depths of self-loathing. We do these things which we're ashamed of, and then we do more. We do drugs to bury the shame, and then we're on drugs, so we do more shameful things. There's a great quote by Jerry Stahl, who wrote a book called Permanent Midnight. Jerry Stahl was a heroin addict. I think Ben Stiller played him in the movie. And Jerry Stahl writes, uh, I, I might kind of butcher the quote, but he writes something along the lines of, with drugs... The unacceptable becomes routine, and the routine is something you never have to think about because of the drugs. You know, for me, I was uh, I was arrested breaking into my relative's home to steal valuables for meth money. I did that once. I did it. I tried the same thing the next day. The police arrested me, uh, and I, I refused to cooperate with the police. I demanded to speak to an FBI agent because I thought I was an undercover FBI operative or, you know, I had numerous delusions around the FBI. The police stripped me naked, put me in a padded cell. uh, And I should say here, this was the police did this for my own protection. I'm grateful to the police now. You know, if I had gone into general population talking about undercover FBI operatives, that would not have been a good scene for anyone. No. Uh, But this was my life at the time. And this is just one example. I'm stripped naked in a padded cell after breaking into my relative's home for drug money. Mm. And this was a a level of acceptability that I had had arrived at in my life. And it was, you know, the drug, just like Jerry Starr writes, the the routine becomes uh, the unacceptable becomes routine. That's what happened with me. And just like you say, Rich, that results for me, it resulted in very deep shame uh, that was incredibly challenging to overcome. Well, I would say that most parents um, of children or most people who know someone who is addicted to some form of drugs really experiences some of the irrational behavior that comes out. And you always say, you know, it's not them. It's not them. It's the drugs that are doing this. And it's such a sad thing to go through and to deal with knowing that this was like, in my case, this was your child 
who you raised, who was such a wonderful, wonderful boy, had the biggest heart in the world, but yet the drugs took over. The drugs and the, the pain that we're going through. Yes. The, the drugs, again, the drugs are not the problem. Right. The, the drugs are a problem, but they're not the problem. For us, the drugs are the attempt at a solution. So, And we know, Rich, we, we usually know, you know, we're not happy when we're when we're in our addiction. We look back and we realize that we hurt the people close to us even more than we hurt ourselves. But when we're in it, the pain that we're using drugs to mask is just so great that it makes it very, very difficult for us to see the consequences of our actions as they uh, as far as they hurt others. It does, in no way does it excuse what we do. In no way am I defending the actions that I took and that other people who are struggling with addictions took. But we're coming from a place of deep pain. We're coming from a place of hopelessness. We're coming from a place of, you know, drugs are, at least for me, drugs are kind of the alternative to suicide. Right. I didn't, re I didn't realize it at the time. But, you know, after I quit drugs, I became suicidal. And the, the drugs were in a twisted way were keeping me alive. So for, you know, if you're looking at your loved one, if you're looking at uh, someone you care about, if you're looking at your coworker and you're finding it very difficult to understand why she or he is doing these things, is making these choices, it's usually because we're coming from a place of very deep pain. You know, when you think about deep pain and you think about some of the things, especially that are going on right now, there's a lot of people out there suffering right now. What yeah. can you say to folks that are dealing with children, loved ones that they know that are possibly relapsing, that are possibly turning to these other methods, what what can they do right now? Well, you're not the only one. Understand that what you're going through, others have gone through as well. There's support. There are a lot of people who care about you. There are groups such as Al-Anon that meet online, there that have literature. Educate yourself as best you can about what support is out there for you. And, and there's a lot of support. Uh, and as always, anything that you might hear from me are my suggestions only. If, if anything you hear from me makes sense, that's great. If, if nothing you hear from me makes sense, that's fine. Discard it in favor of what works better for you. You know, usually the best way to help others is to help ourselves first. It's that old cliche about being on the airplane and uh, the masks come down, you know, the oxygen mask. Put your, your own mask on before you try to help somebody else. What the phenomenon about addiction is often that we will take advice from people who we want to be like, from people who have what we want to have. And what we as addicted people want is happiness. We right. want to feel confident. Yeah, we want to feel like we're worthwhile. We don't really care so much about money or material possessions or status. We just want to feel normal. We want to feel acceptable. We want to feel like we have some place in the, in the world. When we see you, you being a loved one or a colleague, when we see you working towards self-improvement, when we see you uh, striving towards happiness, being of service, being of value in the world, oftentimes we will look at you as a person who we want to be like and as a worthy source of advice. This is the best. Maybe to use an analogy, if, if I were to come up to you and say, hey, Rich, you know, uh, I just lost everything in the stock market. I'm broke. I'm deeply in debt. But Rich, let me give you some advice on financials. You wouldn't listen to my advice, no matter what it was. <laughs> no, right? no, that's true. I could, even if it was good advice, you wouldn't <laughs> listen to it because of the place I was coming from. So when I come to you and I say, hey, Rich, you know, I'm, I'm really unhappy. Uh, I, I can, nothing's going right. Uh, the people around me are making me miserable. I, I can't sleep at night. 
But Rich, let me give you some advice on how to be happy in your life. It's the same thing. Yes. If, if I'm not coming from a place where you want to be, it's going to be hard for you to take my advice. That's so, true. Yeah. So if your advice to someone is not to use drugs, which is often good advice, be coming from a place of of striving after your own happiness, of working towards self-improvement, of bringing your, your beautiful, your best self to the world around you, as oftentimes you are already doing, just try to project that as best you can. It's a difficult thing. It's, it's very hard, especially when someone you love is struggling with addiction. But the most valuable source of advice, the most valuable source of empathy from a person who's struggling with addiction often comes from a person who is dedicated to self-improvement. That's great advice. Let's change things over a little bit. Let's talk about spirituality and meditation a little bit. You've incorporated that into your life. Yeah, very much so. After I quit meth, I would uh, live near the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, and I would fantasize about sending an email, mass email, saying you know goodbye, and walking out to the Golden Gate Bridge and and plunging you know plunging to my death, saying mm. you know waving to the the city, the, the lights of the city as I went. This is I just did not want to live anymore. I had I would fantasize about putting my 357 in my mouth and yanking the trigger. Um, I'm sure I would have done it were it not for my spiritual teacher because he instilled in me a belief that if I were to take my life, I would have to go backwards through many lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that. You know, I didn't even want to relive this life, much less go backwards through many lives. the The critical thing is, if I had heard, if I had read that in an article somewhere or in a book or heard it from, you know, any number of other people, I might have said, ah, you know, okay, maybe, but I, I, I might very well have dismissed it and, and gone on to take my life. It was because of that spiritual teacher's belief in me. It was because of his dedication to his own self-improvement. It was because he had what I wanted. He had this happiness and he had a sense of purpose in his life. I listened to him. I adopted his belief. And even though I wanted to take my life, I, I chose not to only because of the spiritual belief he instilled in me. So it goes back to your previous question. It's so important to be a person who has what the addicted person wants, meaning a, probably a sense of purpose, a, a sense of bringing value to the world around us. Because that advice that my spiritual teacher gave me, that was the reason I took his advice, because he was a person who I wanted to be like. That led to uh, much more spiritual searching and exploration in my life. Well, I sure am glad, uh, as are, I'm sure, hundreds or thousands of people uh, are, are also glad that um, you didn't do that and that you did continue to work on your daily practices and, and continue to fight for your life. Um, because you're doing so many great things right now for so many people, and that's just that's a blessing. Thank you. I appreciate that. If I'm able to bring some small degree of value to the world around me, it's only because so many remarkable, incredible people inspired me. That's great. And what are some of your daily practices? Daily practices are so important. Daily practices are the foundation when those hurricane winds of doubt and fear and anxiety when they threaten to overtake us it's those daily practices that ground us that give us the foundation to withstand whatever's out there for me uh fitness nutrition meditation writing these are some of my daily practices and every day although they might not they might not necessarily necessarily relate to my dream 
of being a writer, those practices of uh, fitness and nutrition and meditation make it so that when I do pursue my dream, when I encounter the inner critic, when I encounter the doubt and the anxiety of, you know, am I wasting my life? Am I not earning enough money? Is anybody going to care or appreciate what I write? When those inevitable doubts and fears come along, it's my daily practices that keep me grounded. And you are a wonderful writer. I, I was reading a lot of your work. You put out a weekly newsletter. You wrote a book. Can you talk to me about some of your writing? Yes, I absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to. Writing is one of the first things I felt good at when I was uh, a little kid. The English teachers would call me to the front of the room sometimes to read my story aloud or, or a story I'd written aloud. When I was 14, I found uh, another way to feel like I was of value, and that was drinking. And from there, you know, the drinking progressed into heavy drug use. So my dream of being a writer, I put that to the side because that was more challenging than the easy road of being intoxicated. When um, I discovered spirituality and self-improvement and service to others, I began to discover that one way perhaps I can serve others is by expressing myself through my love of writing. And uh, I've heard that, you know, what we love to do, we're going to be good at because we're going to do it a lot. And what we get good at is hopefully a way that we can bring value to the world around us. So I began writing when I, uh, soon after I got clean, I would write uh, stories, screenplays, articles. I wrote tens of thousands of pages, much of it no one will ever see <laughs> for good reason, because it's not, you know, it's not really uh, worth seeing. Just striving and persevering for, I don't know, 10, 10 years or so. I, I finally got something published in uh, the Vox website, and it was the reason it was published, I feel, is because of the intent behind it which was to use my story of overcoming addiction to inspire others. That's From great. there, I was able to get a couple pieces in the Washington Post. They, they along with Vox, were very good to me. They published a couple of my articles. And all along, I pursued my dream of writing a book, which just got published yesterday. Today, I saw I saw that. Me. I saw your Facebook post that you just published, that you just got it published. Fantastic. Thank you. And I saw your comment. Thank you for your feedback. <laughs> Much appreciated. I, I've been listening to you, and you mentioned strive for happiness, and you've said that a number of times uh, while you've been talking to me, and it's kind of funny. Years ago, I produced a documentary film entitled Strive for Happiness, and it was about my life growing up in a family that suffered from mental health, and it was my driving towards happiness. I got some criticism about it because they said, you don't strive for happiness, you know? And and I, I just thought it was interesting that you used that terminology because I always thought of it as something in my life that I wanted to you know, wanted to go for. Yeah, well, if you don't have to strive, oh, that's great. I, I am kind of jealous. <laughs> I have to strive because for me, I've come, I've learned that happiness springs from my thoughts. You know, happiness, I think Abe Lincoln said that most people are as happy as they make their minds up to be. That is true. Yeah, I mean, it's true for me. And, you know, the Buddha, I, I don't know if the Buddha said it or if it's mistakenly attributed to him, but he said, Better to conquer oneself than to win a thousand battles. Absolutely. And and for me, conquering myself means being in control of my thoughts, making it so that I can control my thoughts rather than my thoughts controlling me. Because uh, you know, I know a little bit about about stoicism, and you know, the ancient Romans, uh, Marcus Aurelius points out that it's usually our anger and grief 
that makes us suffer rather than the thing that we are angry or grieved about, you know, and from the Buddha to Shakespeare to Oprah and everywhere in between, they've said some version of it. What we think is what we become. That's true. And who we hang out with a lot of times too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They say that we're the five people closest to us, right? That's right. You know, one of the things that my colleagues will say about me is, you know, you're always smiling, you're always happy. And you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I'm not always happy, but I do believe that when you smile at someone, you normally get a smile back and that makes you feel good. Absolutely. The good we put out into the world comes back to us. That's right. And you can look at, I don't know that much about neurology, but apparently we have mirror neurons, right? So we're programmed that when we see someone smile, we smile too. So that's right. Uh, Anne Frank, uh, I think Anne Frank wrote, whoever is happy is going to make other people happy too. Let me shift gears one more time. Some of the work that you did in prisons, working with various different gang members, um, people that have you know been convicted of murder. What, what do you do for them and what is your role? I'm so fortunate. I'm a member of a couple different organizations that deliver entrepreneur and employment training to currently and formerly incarcerated men and women. Part of what I do is go into maximum security prisons, such as Pelican Bay in California. I work closely with men whom, like you say, society has labeled the very worst of the very worst. These are men who are convicted of violent crimes, murder in many cases, men who almost all of them are gang affiliated. They've been in the Crips and the Bloods or the Aryan Brotherhood or the Norteños. But I'll, I'll tell you, Rich, almost every time I work closely with one of these men, I come away with the feeling that if he had been given the same opportunities as I, he would have turned out fine. I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you about what your feelings are towards them when they speak to you one-on-one. -on -one. They're human beings, and it makes me realize uh, this is going to sound very obvious to say, but a person like me was given very unfair advantages because of, let's face it, the color of my skin, mm -hmm. which is white, and my socioeconomic background, which was privileged. Right. So because of these unfair advantages I got as a result, you know, I never had, I, I never quote unquote had to do things like deal drugs in the street. When I dealt drugs, I would do it from a paid for apartment when I was getting my paid for college education. So it's not because someone like me makes better decisions that I'm not in prison. It's because of these unfair advantages that society bestowed upon me because of my birth circumstances and little else. Right. And again, this might sound obvious to say, but it's different to live it. It's different when we sit down in a chair across from a man who wasn't given these advantages, guys who would open their port, their front door when they were seven years old to see someone stabbed and bleeding to death on their front porch. Guys who, uh, one guy, he was five years old and his father shot a man to death right in front of him to show him, the son, how it was done. Terrible circumstances. You know, they left their home. They would walk out the front door on their way to school, be surrounded by the street gang. And their choice is either to join the gang or get stomped. And I know I would have joined the gang if it were me. But and the only reason I'm, I'm not, I, I never joined was probably because I wasn't forced into making a choice. Right. Like these, like many others were. So it doesn't excuse the crimes that they committed. And these, these men, they take ownership of the crimes. They take ownership of the mistakes they made. But they're applying themselves to turn their lives around. And, and I should say I'm speaking of the men I work with who self-select as uh, working very, very hard and dedicating themselves to transforming their lives. 
the men I don't work, the men I work with necessarily represent everyone who's in prison, but they do represent a segment who I believe and I have found deserve second chances. These are men who have paid their debts to society in many cases, who are able to contribute, who want to contribute. And the thing I've learned from my own life and the lives of other incarcerated persons or formerly incarcerated persons is that when society extends second chances, society benefits. Mm-hmm. Second chances benefit the giver as much as the receiver. That's something I've been fortunate to be taught in my own life and to see in these incredible men and women. I, I keep saying men because I only go into men's prisons, but I also work with women who, uh, who have been released from incarceration. Our sisters and brothers who have served time, who have turned their lives around, when they earn their second chance, we as a society benefit from extending it to them. Do you find that this is a form of rehabilitation for you as well? Absolutely. It's a way of seeing the value that I can bring to the world around me. When I was a meth addict, when I was smoking, hitting that glass pipe and hearing the disembodied voices of the FBI and the police and my family and seeing invisible stealth bombers following me, when I was toting a loaded 357 pistol as protection against the people I thought were after me, in no way was I contributing to society. And I was always going on a path of self-destruction because, you know, why I wasn't a person who I could respect. I wasn't a person who I could like. So, yeah, Rich, absolutely. It's a way of me bringing value to society. It's a way of me maybe helping others in some small way, but certainly these others helping me much more. That's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast as well, because for me, it's a way for me to continue to move forward, not get over, uh, but move forward in my life. And hopefully we'll be sharing some goodness to to a lot of people. You're making amazing contributions, Rich. You're doing uh, wonderful work. How do you feel now? How is life treating you now? There's a story about a person who's walking through the woods and encounters a butterfly. And the butterfly is struggling to get out of its cocoon. And the, and the butterfly is struggling and fighting, is fighting. It can't get it out of the cocoon. So the person takes out a knife and starts to cut the cocoon to try and help the butterfly. But really, the person is harming that butterfly because it's the struggle to get out of the cocoon that gives the butterfly's wings its strength so it can fly. So I, I feel like that butterfly. You know, they say when you get to the top of the mountain, don't curse the path that got you there. And while I'm maybe not at the top of my mountain yet, I'm getting there. So I look back upon all the uh, all the poor decisions I made, all the bad choices, the ways I hurt myself, the way I hurt others. I am not proud of that. I'm deeply ashamed. I'm utterly ashamed of many of the things I've done. But I see myself as like that butterfly who needs that struggle to give my wings their strength. And hopefully my wings are a metaphor for being able to bring some degree of value to the world around me because uh, it's so many incredible, amazing people who brought so much to me. And that's the reason I'm here today. I feel a lot of pride 
And I'm sure that there's a lot of other people that are out there that feel the same way. And I can't thank you enough for contributing all of these great things through your writing, through your books, through your work with the prison system, through your work with the FBI, and just being here today and sharing your experience with us on Silent Presence. It really means a lot. Thank you so much. And if your uh, listeners or audience would like to get in touch with me, um, if if there's any way I can help with anything they may be going through, if they want to get my newsletter, if uh, any way I can be of service, they can go onto my website or call me on the phone. And uh, I'm always here to, to try and help. Thank you so much, Ed. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Rich. Take care. All right. It's been my pleasure. Our guest today has been Ed Cressy, author of My Addiction and Recovery. Just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. For more information about Ed or to find out where you can order a copy of his book, you can go to his website at edcressy.com. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please feel free to share it with others and visit my website at silentpresencepodcast.com. Thanks for listening to Silent Presence. Tune in next week for another amazing guest. And remember, be kind to one another. You may just be the silent presence they need. For more information, visit silentpresencepodcast.com.